Striking a chord. I'm Evan Ball. Today on the show, we have Joe Hottinger, guitarist of Hailstorm. We will talk about many things, including the first time he met Lizzie Hale and joined the band, his early quest to become a lead guitar player, Hailstorm's journey from local bar band to rock stardom. We talk about living in Nashville, his inspirations from Nirvana to Jeff Buckley. And of course, we'll talk about the current state of his band and music in general. In the first couple of weeks of the corona shutdowns, I was able to grab a bunch of remote interviews. So things have changed a bit since then, but not really much at all for bands. So we'll continue to hear about that as these episodes are released. But without further ado, ladies and gentlemen, Joe Hottinger. Joe Hottinger, welcome to the podcast. Hey, man. Thanks for having me. Yeah. So this is our first remote interview in the new age of uh, sheltering in place. Yeah. Maybe we can start out touching on that. So from your vantage point, what does the current state of the music industry look like? I mean, what music industry? <laughs> yeah. Really? No, I mean, crazy. It's total, it's chaos and upheaval in a really strange way and um, very passive way. I, you know, obviously everyone is streaming things now, which is really cool. It's neat to be able to see some artists singing some songs live and kind of in the moment, you know, and it yeah, yeah. um, doesn't even come close to the live show experience, but it's neat. And, you know, and really it's strange time. It's unprecedented times for all of us alive today. And it's weird. So it is kind of comforting to hear that stuff and to be able to feel a little more connected to people. Yeah. And I, you know, like we've been doing, we've gotten really busy which I thought was strange huh. just doing lots of streaming things and interviews. And, um, it's, uh, it's a trip, you know, it's, it's kind of neat in the sense that, like I say, you know, we're connecting with people and every, you know, I think there's like a, uh, reckoning happening with a lot of people and a reset happening. And I know it's happening in my life. I feel like I'm kind of resetting how I'm living or how I was living, you know, and I, it's, it's an opportunity to start over. So, I hope in the music business, I don't know what that start over is going to be like. And it's crazy. I know, you know, it's part yeah. of the ongoing discussion happening right now. Yeah. I mean, it could be some sort of crazy creativity renaissance with from, from memes to home music recording. Yeah. It's, it's hard know, to predict what will come out of it. We're, I, we're, t- we're planning on taking this time to write anyway. We're supposed to start at the beginning of March and, and we did. I mean, we have, and we have been writing. So this is all. Going according to plan, not not really, yeah, but uh, right. you know the the rhythm section can't. Lizzie and I live together, so we're just here doing music and putting puzzles together and watching movies. <laughs> but uh, yeah, and thank God it's so nice to be with someone that's so creative like she is. It's inspiring, and you know I don't I don't think we've tapped into our groove yet. Writing, we're still fighting, digging that hole, and trying to get to the point of it all. But we got time, so it's all right. And you guys are a band that that tours an awful lot on a normal yeah. year. Yeah. I mean, there's, there's so much unknown right now. I would think even rescheduling a tour, you're, you're crossing your fingers when you're doing that. Yeah. It, it's, I, who, man, I don't know. I, you know, I'm kind of like still mentally preparing myself for the lean months ahead and it's 
Yeah, it's crazy. Like everything this year so far has been not everything this year. I mean, we got stuff in summer. I just I have a feeling this is going to last the whole year, right? And we won't be able to play another show till next year. I hope not, but yeah, yeah. I'm yeah. kind of preparing myself for that, and that's insane. I, we haven't gone a year without playing a show. I haven't in probably 20 years and I can't, that's, I don't know. That's like our drug, our favorite thing to do ever is play rock shows. And yeah, it's crazy. I the streaming bet. thing is like a little touch of a hit of it, but it's not the same. You don't get the energy. No. And I should point out, we're recording this on April 1st and this will probably air in, you know, a month or so because things are changing so fast. We don't even know what a oh. month from now looks like, but yeah, I'll, right? just, I'll just timestamp this. But yeah, it's, I think it's strange for everybody being cooped up at home, but I would think especially strange for people who are like you used to living on the road. Yeah. I mean, the, the road is home really when we're home, it's kind of like vacation. So any, any good puzzles or movies? Yeah. Oh, so, <laughs> <laughs> so I found, we had like a little game closet and I found this unopened puzzle in there from like three or four years ago that a fan gave us. And it was this picture of Ronnie James Dio made into a puzzle. Oh, okay. And, uh, I was like, oh, awesome. We got a Dio puzzle, a little 500 piece thing. And, you know, I, I took it out and did it over like three or four days. And I was like, ah, oh, great. This Dio puzzle. I was like, I want another puzzle. That was yeah. fun. <laughs> Apparently everyone has had this idea because I went on Amazon and there's like no puzzles available. Like none. You couldn't get them. I mean, they are a non-essential item. Totally. And maybe it's for a good cause but there's only one that was available with like two day shipping that wasn't like it'll show up in two months so i got this puzzle and it, the, the only problem is is eighteen thousand pieces <laughs> it's li- i haven't done it's literally nine feet nine feet by six feet and they're all you know regular tiny sized pieces right and it comes in four bags each one is 4500 so i'm still working on the first one it's great i'm Dang. excited okay. it's totally ridiculous yeah that's a project what about revenue streams for artists in general? I mean, I don't know if, if bands sell many much merch online. I would think most of that happens at live shows too. Yeah, I don't, you know, I mean, we're not a huge online merch band. It, right. it, it does all right, but it's not like the kind of money that's going to keep you afloat. You know, I, we're lucky, man. We, we've, been, we've had such a lucky career and we've busted our ass getting to where we are and we're, we're going to be all right. We're trying to keep our crew afloat and because they're not going to be working this year. And, you know, we're doing what we can, but I think it's, I think it's lean times. And I think that's going to be one of the most interesting things that come out of this whole scenario is I think there's going to be like a, a new music business, you know, and I don't know what it's going to be exactly, but people are getting creative. People are doing live shows online. Code Orange is doing really cool stuff. Um, but yeah, I don't know. It's, I don't, I don't know what we're going to do. Yeah. We're going to figure that we're talking to our management right now, trying to figure out, what the next steps in this life are, <laughs> which is crazy to think about. Yeah. Do you, are you one to sit around on the couch or wherever with a, with an acoustic guitar or, and just kind of noodle and maybe, maybe parts come up? You know, not uh, sometimes, I don't know. I got to be in the mood to sit around. With the, I, we have a studio in the basement and I just have it all. Uh, I like to sit down there I got a riff station upstairs. We, we live on a lake looking out over the lake. So, and like riff and look at the water or go down like the studio and like be productive, you know? Yeah. And, uh, I don't, I don't know. I, I like, I like watching shows and stuff. I, like I, I'll maybe watch one episode or something a day at the end of the day. I can't just sit and watch stuff. I get too antsy. I don't, I don't like it. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So what else are you doing besides 
puzzles. Really, just playing music. Okay, good. Cooking a lot of food. Yeah. We, we kind of prepared a few weeks before this all went down and got a lot, a lot of Sorry. frozen. The writing on the wall, you know. Yeah, yeah. Uh, kind of overstocked on things, so we've just been hanging out here and go fishing if it's a nice day. But trying to work on music, trying to stay productive. You know. Does your whole band live nearby? Yeah. You guys, you guys could all shelter in place together and write your next five albums. You know, now it'd be cool. We stopped getting together uh, right when that shelter in place order kind of came out because yeah, the boys yeah. were coming over every day. Right. We were just working on new music and I don't know. We just decided not to take a chance. None of us want to get sick. And Good call. If one of us does, I don't want to get them sick and their families and their sick, you know, whatever. Yeah. And you can do a lot remotely too. Yeah. And honestly, Lizzie and I just make demos and then we'll work them out with the guys and whatever they come up with, they got little portable studios. We will all get together once this all blows over and hustle, you know? Yeah. Are you guys in the Nashville area? Yep. Yeah. I know there's a the crazy amount of musicians per capita there, but I'm wondering why specifically did you guys choose to settle in Nashville over some other city? Really? It was, uh, I was following my guitars and we, yeah. we made our second record and started using a tour bus for the first time on that one, I guess, eight years ago. And, uh, the first few tours we did, we were, we're from Pennsylvania while we were making the second record. Lizzie's parents, which is where all our stuff was kind of stashed at their house in PA, um, they decided to move to Florida. So we got done with the second record and ended up in Florida. We didn't live anywhere, you know? Yeah. Ended up in going to Florida because we my parents were down there too and they weren't that far away. Kind of living at, everyone was living with their parents. Uh-huh. And we'd start a tour and we had all our gear down there and the tour bus would come up in Asheville and pick us up in Florida. We'd do the run and then drop us off in Florida and then the tour bus would drive back. And every time that's called a deadhead because there's nobody in the bus, but the driver to drive from Nashville to Florida and back and each tour ended up costing us like 10 grand per tour just to have the bus pick us up and drop us off. Oh, wow. And I, you know, that, that was whatever that, that was the bus companies where you use, there's so many of them in Nashville. So after two tours of that, we're like, okay, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and no, it's cheaper to fly everyone to Nashville get the gear and get on the bus than it is to have the bus, you know? Yeah. So yeah. it was like, a, it was a business decision and we're like, all right, we're moving the gear. And I was just like, well, if I'm, my guitars are going, I'm going, I don't, I can afford an apartment now. Like whatever. I, <laughs> yeah, I'm going. And, and we did yeah. and fell in love with the town right away. You know, we start, a lot of music comes through and obviously it's music safety. There's musicians everywhere and they're all amazing. And, uh, we just, within like the first few months, just, you know, accidentally stumbled on this rock and roll residency that was going on at the time. And these dudes that are, now they play for Ace Freely and Gene Simmons. And one of the guys is an accept. And I mean, they're, they're just killing it. But at the time, every Tuesday night, they get together and just play like seventies rock <laughs> and have guests come up. So they saw Lizzie and I there and they're like, you guys should come up and play. So we did. And just kind of got welcomed into this rock and roll family in this town. And there's such a great rock and roll family in this town. Yeah. Just like some of the nicest, best people from a bunch of really legendary bands. And it's cool. I love it. Really unique place. Yeah. I hadn't been there for a while. I went to this last summer, Nam, with my cousin. You visit a lot of the, the music stuff and went to some, went to a studio or two, but I had no yeah. idea like the, the bachelorette central, like 
way more than Vegas. It was insane. I don't know if it was just that weekend or if, if that's the no, thing. It's always, it, uh, it's been within the last like five or six years. Like it's just gone crazy downtown. The previous summer NAM I went to was, was probably 12, 15 years ago. And every bar on, it's Broadway, right? The, the main yeah. strip. Yeah. Every bar on Broadway had a ripping country guitar player. Yeah. And then this time it was pure cover bands. Yeah, it's weird. There's only one Roberts. good one left. Roberts Western World. That's only yeah, good yeah, one yeah. left. Yeah, we went yeah, over there. Yeah. Do you know uh, Daniel Donato? Yeah. Yeah, he took we went out with him and he used to be the the house guitar player there when he was what 17 or whatever. Yeah. So, yeah. 5 years old. The kid is so ridiculous. Yeah, we saw yeah. him and we had a day off in Charlottesville and I saw he was playing and we don't know him that well. We've met him a few times and seen him around but he's just insane. Like there's so many Pickers like that. Jared James Nichols lives out here now. He's just a ripper. Like, yeah. It's disgusting. And uh, it, I love it, man. There's so crazy many- talent. Yeah. And, you know, at least, at least the cover, at least there were cover bands instead of, uh, at least it was still live music, I guess. Yeah. I, yeah. Yeah. That's something. We have a bunch of friends that make a living playing music because of Broadway. Well, they used to. Yeah. That's changed. But uh, I hope they can get back to it because I know that, that you know, this is life-changing, whatever's going on, especially for musicians. Yeah. But uh, regardless, yeah, you know, I, I can't stomach a cover band that long. You know, you go down Broadway, those guys... You're not just hanging like, out Broadway every night? Oh, my God, no, I can't. <laughs> can't do it. And uh, it's, it's a bit like, it's just so intense. And there's so many other cool bars in Nashville that yeah, we're all yeah. going. No, we, yeah, I'm sure. We just ventured out from our hotel, and that's what we saw. But No, you got to do entertaining, it. entertaining, right. All right. Well, let's get some of your backstory. When did you join your first band? My, I started my first band in 97 in high school. Um, okay. Yeah, I remember we had a, our first gig booked at Fenario Coffee House in Westchester, PA. It was a hippie coffee house that had bands. And like the, the only other bands I knew in the area would play there. So to me, like, we got a gig. We, made a, we recorded a demo on like a cassette tape hit record on it, you know, <laughs> play. And I was like, we did it. <laughs> we got a gig. <laughs> yeah. And uh, turned out it was Jerry Garcia's birthday and they closed in remembrance of him ah. or something, or maybe it was his death day. I don't know. I was, it was such a bummer, but uh, I, I was doing an interview maybe six, seven years ago with Lizzie in Germany. And uh, this guy asked us each when our first ever gig was, and when Lizzie and I were doing the interview and we realized that we had our first ever shows were in the same month of the same year, just like a county or two apart. We didn't know each other. No way. But uh, yeah, we both started at literally exactly the same time. So 97. Yeah, that was 97 until I graduated in 2000 and went to college in James Madison in Virginia for three years. And I had a, I think I was in two different bands down there. I, I knew more music people in Philly. So I kind of quit college, moved to downtown Philly. You know, I, I was like the first week I was there, I answered an ad in Origivation magazine, which was like the local music rag that was just in all the music shops. And uh, it's the only ad I've ever answered in my life. And thank God I did because it was, there were, they didn't say who it was. It didn't matter. I wouldn't have known who Hillstorm was anyway. They didn't have anything going on yet. And uh, they were looking for a guitar player and I went and auditioned and they asked me to come out. And I was like, what? You know, I was impressed because it was at this studio. Lizzie had been working with his producer, Dave Ivory. And he had engineered one of the early Roots records. 
So he had a gold record on the wall. And I was like, whoa, this is the real stuff. You know, yeah. <laughs> there's a yeah. gold record on the wall. <laughs> but yeah, I joined the band. They were like, you want to, you know, you hear her sing for the first time and it's kind of like, whoa, your voice is really cool. And I remember, you know, she, it, was, yeah. it was really intimidating actually because like I kind of walked in not knowing what the hell I was getting into and, and they didn't tell what the band was or any songs. It was just like, come in and play and see what happens. And she like walked up to me like, hi. And she's kind of got a low speaking voice because she's always been singing. And uh, I was like, oh, hi. Okay. Wow. This lady's crazy. And then she started <laughs> singing. I was like, holy shit. You know, yeah, yeah, yeah. voice. And uh, luckily they wanted to play music with me. And I've literally been doing that ever since. So you overlapped a bit with Lizzie's dad still playing bass, right? No, he wasn't on bass anymore. She was 19, I think. RJ was like 15 or 16 years old. He was just bouncing off the walls in that audition room. And they were looking for a bass player too at the time. Okay. So this was kind of an era of an overall reboot, I would think. Yeah, no, totally. They were, they were, they had two kids in the band with them that had dropped out six months earlier to join cover bands because they wanted to make money, you know? Oops. Or something like that. Yeah. Thank God. Good. <laughs> I'm glad their poor yeah. decisions might win. But yeah, you know, Lizzie, Lizzie and RJ were the first people I ever met that were like, that had the ideas that I had. Like some of my musician friends kind of did in Philly, but not really. Like I was always like, well, we can do this. You just got to work, you know, we got to, we got to practice every day and we got to hit the ground and get as many gigs as we can. You know, like we got, we could play every day if we work hard, you know, I don't know. It's just, yeah, yeah. it seemed possible to, I don't know what doing it, but to make a living to like, just be a musician. But they had me. that drive, that work ethic. Yeah. They, they had that. They had already been a band for, I think five years, the two of them yeah. since they were little kids. And so they kind of had, they're in central PA. So they kind of had like this network of shows and venues that they could play at. Yeah. So that was built in. And then like, I knew some people in Philly kind of, so I was trying to get shows in Philly going, but they, whatever, they, they had their, their shit together. They're the first people I met that were like hustling, you know, and always wanting to get better. And I always wanted to get better. And all I cared about was like making moments in music, you know, and they, had the same ideas. So it was, it was, a, it was awesome. It was a relief yeah. to be in with a bunch of people that wanted to work because we've all been in bands where there's always the guys that are just like, yeah, whatever. And you're just like, no, but if we all chipped in, we could do this. Uh, okay. never mind. <laughs> How about style wise? Was this, was this similar to what you had been doing before with previous bands? No, you know, I had just like, a year or two earlier discovered Jeff Buckley and it kind of like rocked my world, you know, like, yeah, I, I, I real quick, I, I learned that emotion and music were so closely tied together, which duh, but I, I don't know. It didn't click with me. I heard it, you know, I, I would hear him play chords and the way he sang and the way that lined up and the way it made me feel. And it was like masterful to me because I, I had never written with uh, those sort of ideas before and those sort of moments that literally, you know, when good music makes your skin crawl and it can move your muscles and you like twitch and yeah. Oh my God. That's a, that's prime example of like someone who's going to give you goosebumps. Yeah. It's like the best moment. Some of the best moments. the Zeppelin could do it. And so I liked everything I listened to up until I heard Jeff, I kind of threw out the window and I was like, all right, no, that matters. And I started like kind of listening back to see, if what I liked was actually good, but I would, I, we call it like the Buckley test, you know, like, <laughs> yeah. And uh, my, my buddies and I, and 
And, you know, I was actually kind of, I was pretty close. A lot of it like Soundgarden, like, like hearing that again with the, these new ears and as to what, to me, my standard of what music should be and how moments should be made is what I considered good music. And they were killing it. Pearl Jam, you know, STP, like. So you were more cool. rooted in the grunge scene before that? Yeah, it was, yeah, okay. it was Nirvana that got me and made me want to play guitar. Kurt was like my first music hero, you know? Yeah. I was late to it all. I think it was 94, 95 when I got into rock and roll. He had already died. And so there's no way I would ever see him. But I didn't care. Like I got into Nirvana and then anything that was played on the radio, I loved it. It didn't, I didn't, I just loved every single thing and I had to figure out how to play it, you know? Yeah. Well, so you come of age when the guitar solo is maybe not as prominent as it had been. You're, you're a lead player. So when, when does that come about? Oh, I appreciate that. I'm, I'm <laughs> yeah. still busting my ass. No, I, so I joined, the point of all that was like, I had sold all my rock and roll gear and I bought a telly and I, I wanted the same amp Jeff Buckley had, but it, I couldn't afford the spender. I don't know what it was. I got a, like a Mesa, Mesa boogie combo. It was like a recto verb. Just wanted something with reverb in it. And I was still learning, you know, trying to figure it out, but I was not a lead player at all. It just never made sense to me. And joining the band, Liz was like, oh, you got to do a solo here. And I was like, <laughs> oh, really? <laughs> okay. <laughs> and uh, so I just started trying to do solos and trying to figure out how that worked, you know? And I'm still trying to figure out how that works. And that's, that's now become like my favorite thing is just pure melodic improv-, improv and something that we've been working into our set the last few years. And it's been a journey. You know, I've been in the band how long now? Oh, three. What is that? Almost 20 years, 17 years. And I feel like in the last year, I'm finally getting to a point where my fingers are starting to do the things that my brain is wanting to do, which is, yeah, yeah. it shouldn't take that long. Maybe I'm a bum, but. So where do you uh, look at that point for, for inspiration or for guidance on learning leads? You know, I remember I would, I would like kind of bounce around and take lessons around Philly and I think I took some lessons in central PA here and there, just trying to, I don't know, tap into anything that made sense to me, you know? And it was most, mostly the biggest steps I've made were learning solos, other people's solos, but exactly. It was something Tremani taught me back in like eight or nine years ago when we did a tour with Alter Bridge. And every day I'd like wake up at noon and he'd be in there like hustling you know, on the fretboard. Mm-hmm. I'm like, dude, what are you doing? <laughs> I was there that much. And he was like, oh, I'm doing, he was on True Fire learning solos of, the, of this guy's improv class. And he's like, no, but I'm, I'm not just learning it. I'm like learning it, like down to every nuance. He's like, and only when you get the nuance and you can, and I can play it all the way through without screwing up. And then, I, then I'll move on, you know? And that blew my mind. I was like, wow, that's, because I'd be like, well, okay. So I, I was like, can I, can I, I'm, I'm going to do it too. And he showed me what lesson and I bought it. And I, I like kind of went through one. I went back to him. I was like, I think it's like this. He's like, no, dude, he's throwing it. Watch, he's throwing his middle finger and like flick that string there. And he's actually playing it on this finger and doing the bend with that finger. And I was like, oh, oh. Nice. Oh, Nitty gritty. Yeah, yeah. No, like down to like every detail. And so that was like my first, like I learned this one solo and I, like, for the first time ever, my fingers felt fluid, you know? And I was like, oh, man. What kind of solos? Like, like, what bands? Like Zeppelin stuff. Now, nowadays, I'm, like, I, I just love Dickie Betts and the Allman Brothers and, and 
I'll, I'll, I'll put on, I got a bunch of the live brothers records and I'll just throw one of those on and like jam along to a side and kind of tap into some licks. I, I, I don't get exactly, I need, I probably need to spend more time learning nuance like Mark had showed me every once in a while I get into the nuance things and I'll do a true fire class or I'll pick a record or a solo and like dig deep. But mostly now it like, I'm more kind of concerned with like the, the expression, like the, just the spontaneous improv. Yeah. Like how do you make, so, how do you make these moments and make it melodic, but throw in some rip, ripping, you know, get a little ripping in too, but patience, you know, the thing I have to work on so hard is patience and take a breath and space. It's yeah, like yeah. the hardest thing for me. Cause I get so excited and it's like solo time. And I just want to like do all the things real fast. And <laughs> I mean, I still f- fall into that. And it's just like, take a breath, man. <laughs> right, right. Let's get back to Hailstorm real quick. So you joined, what's the popularity level of the band at that point? Um, when I joined? Yeah. I don't know. Uh, maybe touring or local. local no, fans? no, no. We, we uh, I mean, th- my first show was in Shemokin, PA as a coal town. And they had the, the, the venue there. I, I never played it but it was called the coal hole, which I thought was hilarious, but it was like this weird <laughs> outdoor like town fest, you know, and the big headliner was an Aussie tribute band. <laughs> okay. yeah. We're on like in the middle of the afternoon playing to people who had no idea who we were. Like if we went and played at a bar, maybe 10 people would show up if even, okay. if it was in the right town. And uh, so there wasn't much going on with it. I mean, the, the kids have been busting their ass for sure, but you know, it was just okay. bar band stuff. Was it a, a pretty quick ascent from there? Because didn't you get signed by Atlantic not too long after that? Yeah, in 2005. Okay. So, so, so were you being heavily scouted or was this something that was fairly unexpected? I, I remember in 04, the beginning of 04, Dave Ivory, who, who we were working with, entered, like, was trying to get A&R guys to see us. You know, and In fact, Pete Gambar, who's been our A&R guy now, not the guy that signed us, but he's been our A&R guy since the first record, actually came out and saw us at a show at Grape Street in Philly and totally passed. I remember seeing his like Mercedes outside. I'm like, oh, he's here somewhere. And yeah. we didn't even meet him. He must have popped in, watched a few songs and left. And there was like other people. I remember someone from Columbia Records came by Dave Ivory's studio and they're like, a woman can't be on rock radio. Not right now. There's already one out there. And uh, <laughs> it was just so fucked up it's crazy but uh like one lady was like oh no they're at least a year away from being close to anything and we're like okay whatever that means you know whatever we we kind of got sick of it like there was a guy a really sweet guy larry mazer who's a big manager he managed pat benatar cinderella uh, he was working with Brayton benjamin at the time and he kind of we didn't sign with him but he was like i can get you i think i can get you guys a deal and he brought some people who all passed on us and we're like whatever you know, we're always we're always trying to take whatever the next step forward was. But is, is this interest that you're getting, is it based on recording or, or because you've been playing live and generating a following? No, it was based on the fact that, like, Dave Ivory had taken an interest and he was trying to stir up his music business friends. We, like, he had worked with Silvertide, too, who had gotten signed out of Philly not long before that. So he had like an ear to the ground thing and people were paying attention, you know? So you got the right guy to believe in you, the the guy with connections. Yeah. And the the way we got signed was we, we, 
he, he got this guy that was an old executive from Atlantic, Frank, Frank, God, I can't remember his last name, but he was starting a new label and he wanted to sign a band and David talked to him and he's like, all right, well, maybe this band, you know, so we went up to Don Hills up in New York city. We played this Wednesday night for this showcase for this dude. And it didn't work out. It was like, like everything else, whatever. It didn't happen. But Don Hill saw us and Don was like, Hey, I think you guys are really cool. And I, and I want you to come back next week and play again. And I'm going to bring my lawyer out. Cause I think he could get you a record deal. And like, this is at this point we've heard, yeah, yeah, we can get you a record deal like 50 times, you know? Yeah. Like people would see us play live and because the recordings weren't doing it and they'd be like, oh, I get it. Yeah, we'll get you a record deal. And we're like, we just stopped believing people. <laughs> you know, we're yeah. like, whatever. Yeah, yeah. We're actually making a living playing music at that point. Lizzie and I were playing three, four nights a week acoustic during the week. And then uh, weekends yeah. we were playing electric shows one or two nights a week full band and we're we were playing like five six nights a week in like a hundred mile radius just we're just busting our ass you know we have like these four hour acoustic shows get 75 or 150 bucks each night and entertain the crowd and we're having a blast and making a living you know we're like whatever we can we not we kind of crack the code on making a living playing music and we're happy doing that and we're always you know taking every opportunity that was thrown at us but it was like it became kind of take it with a grain of salt. Oh, I can do this. I remember one show we played, we played CBGBs and the, some lady that worked there was like, you guys were amazing. She's like, I'm going to help you out. She's like, you know, the only other band I've ever said that to was a little band that played here. They were called the police. <laughs> <laughs> and they're like, cool, <laughs> whatever, <laughs> you know, and I'm sure she had good intentions. She was very excited and, yeah. We were just doing our thing, you know, like trying to make moments like I was talking about. And we kind of got really good at like making every song had to have some killer moment that made people go like, what the hell? And Lizzie's voice was so insane that we could do it every song, you know? Yeah, yeah. So we kept doing that. Sorry, I'm giving you like the super long version. No, but regardless, Don Hill has come back, play for his lawyer. His lawyer, David, was like, yeah, oh yeah, I'll get you guys a deal, whatever. And we're like, yeah, okay, whatever. And uh, he's like, no, seriously, come back next week, bring an acoustic, we'll go up to Epic, we'll go to Columbia, we'll go to, you know, hit a few labels. <laughs> like, all right, screw it, you know, what, what's the worst that could happen? And so we did, we played acoustic at a bunch of labels, they were like, okay, and I think we had a full band gig that night too at Don Hills again. And he was like, that was just a warm up, he's like, the one guy I think that is really going to get you and that would work well with you guys is Lee Lust, he's at Atlantic Records, and he's coming out, so just do your thing. So we did. And, you know, Lee, Lee was excited. He was like, Hey, I want to see you guys play in Philly. Uh, I got to see that again. So that kind of got the ball rolling. And mm -hmm. he came down, we did like a private show for him at Grape Street. And he was just telling us that like, Hey, uh, you know, I'm really into you guys. I'm going to try to get a record deal for you. I'm like, cool. He's like, I, you know, I had to see you again to see if that magic I saw that night was like a thing or it was a fluke. He was like, I've seen, because Lee was an A&R guy, a consummate A&R guy. He was out every night of the week in New York City seeing bands, you know? Yeah. And uh, he was like, I've seen bands that have completely melted my brain. And then there's the only show they've ever played where they were that good. He's like, I had to check it out again, and, which was cool. You know, it was a nice compliment. But yeah. yeah. Then we got Monday and Friday for the next like eight months to the point where we didn't care. <laughs> you know, right. and we did, but it was like, it was just like, no, we'll have the deal ready on Monday. No, we'll have it by Friday. No, you know, 
well, the deal will be, there's going to be a deal. And yeah, yeah. We, meanwhile, we we're going up to New York like once a month playing. Here's the president of the label. Here's the chairman of Warner. Here's this guy. Here's the marketing team. And like, uh, you know, Lee did his work to get us signed and, and good on him because it worked because we ended up yeah. signing a deal. Wow. So you were on the verge for a while. Yeah, I, I mean, yeah, we were just, maybe that's probably condensed into a shorter time, but but lots of uh, interactions there. Yeah, no, totally. You've had a, a somewhat gradual climb, but are there certain milestones or memories that stand out? I remember, you know, our first time in a tour bus. That was like, whoa, right? Yeah, yeah, this is happening. You know, like yeah, we had always kind of we never did too much van touring because we we took our whole like. Uh, recording advance and stuff and put it into an old shitty RV and put bunks in it to save money on the road. And it worked like we were able to do that first album cycle kind of in the black. I think it was by like $11, but we Uh didn't lose money and we'd stay in Walmart parking lots every night or if it was special night and go to a KOA and get showers, (laughs) Yeah, yeah. (laughs) you know? And, uh, so I remember like, you know, you see all these other bands and buses and I remember that was a thing, like some new band would come out and they'd have a bus and, I'm like, how are they, they must just be blowing through all their money. Cause you know, you're spending $10,000 a week on one of those things. And we just couldn't fathom how any band could (laughs) afford that. And we had had a few singles on the radio that did well and it was going good. And we're like, Oh my God. But the second album, we finished that up. We kind of got a new crew and it's hard to hire good crew guys. If you're not in the tour bus for one, (laughs) Hmm. you know, like, quality crew guys aren't going to go back to a van tour if they're real good at what they're doing. And I mean, that's not saying there aren't quality crew guys in a van tour. I'm just, we were trying to like up our game a little bit, you know? And yeah. so we kind of pulled the trigger on the bus, which is what I was telling you about when we learned about the deadheads that cost 10,000 bucks to t- up tour. Like, Oh my God, <laughs> we got to move our stuff to Nashville. But, uh, yeah. but that was a big moment getting on a bus. Cause I mean, we just went nuts that first month. It was awesome. It, like, I didn't have to, I didn't have to drive in anymore, which was like, that's oh a nice God, perk. Josh and I used to do yeah, Josh and I used to do all the driving, so we were like partying it up, having a great time. And yeah. Then it was like uh, later that year, we got nominated for a Grammy, and we won one, which was like what amazing. Yeah, that was awesome. Personally, just because you know we didn't even know that we were on the Academy's radar, you know, just to even get nominated. There's actually an amazing picture out there. We were playing in Wisconsin. Google like Lizzie Hale Grammy finds out about a Grammy or something. This girl took it from the crowd, but we're in the middle of the show at this theater in Madison and Lizzie would, you know, we all walked off and Lizzie does a piano thing. She was kind of talking to the crowd for a bit. And my guitar tech was like, Joe, you got, you got nominated for a Grammy dude. And I was like, what? Like, I don't believe you shut the fuck up. And uh, so I Googled it and I was like, oh shit, we did. And I, I, she hadn't started playing yet. So I ran out and I kind of just whispered it in her ear. And right as she kind of realized that this girl took a picture and such a good picture, it like makes my heart melt every time. Oh, that's awesome. It, it was awesome. Like her face looks, or she's got the, the most amazing face. Like it's just, you know, it's totally unbelievable. And it was unbelievable. And, it, you know, and it was kind of a game changer for us. We didn't know at the time it would be, but. Yeah, it, it gave us some sort of credit, especially with especially with like older booking guys. You know, you, you got a Grammy, like yeah. And just to emphasize that, you guys went ahead and actually won it. Yeah, insane. Like 
we went there to go have fun with the parties. We we didn't, we were sure we weren't going to win. We're like, this is, we're not going to win, but I don't know how we, I don't know how that worked out, but it was awesome. And it was such a good moment. I remember we like won and we were like, Oh my God. And we were walking down this hallway to go get, you have to go get your picture taken, holding it. And, uh, like my dad called me, he was watching it online and he was like crying and he was like, I'm so proud of you, you know, and you get yeah. like, that's a cool moment. I mean, yeah, there's not a, it's a, really a bigger milestone in music than that. That's huge. Yeah, it was, it was adorable. And Who did you guys think was going to win it? Do you remember? Um, I thought it was Lamb of God because yeah. I, I, mean, I was just such a fan of that band. And like the song we were up for, Love Bites, it's like, I was learning Lamb of God riffs when we wrote those riffs, you know, oh, okay. I forget what song, but I was like deep into some Lamb of God riffing. And then we went down and worked out love bites and there's totally like Lamb of God influence all over that. And I, you know, I, I was like, well, they, they're going to win. We're not whatever. And yeah, it was a trip. And they call out, they didn't even call out Hailstorm. The guy said love bites and we're like, Oh, Oh wait, that's awesome. Oh, <laughs> <Right>. shit. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So are there more yeah. milestones you want to hit, grow your fan base even more? Or do you feel like you're, you're at a point now where you can basically say, we're here and just continue to put out good music and whatever happens? Well, you know, I, you kind of, one thing I learned during that second album cycle and beyond and is that you never really run out of dreams. And uh, right. like we hit a lot of them, which is how lucky are we? You know, it's so cool. I mean, just to be able to tour the world doing what we love with the people that we love, like we're all best friends and we hang out on days off and when we're home, like it's just fun, you know, same with our crew. We have one of the best crews ever and they're our buddies and it's what we like to do, you know, go out and play rock shows. And to me, the next big milestone, well, it's not even a milestone. It's just a goal is to just keep going, keep pushing forward and keep making moments. And like, just ride it, you know, like I, I, I don't want to settle. That's my thing. Like I'm not settled right now. I'm totally freaked out about the next record because I've written a whole bunch of stuff and I don't think any of it's good enough and it's freaking me out. <laughs> yeah. On one hand, I'm glad we have a lot of time right now, but whatever. It's like this every record, you know, you like start out, you dive in and realize that nothing is good enough. And then you have to ha have a reckoning and figure out what the hell. And then it starts happening. I don't know. Well, does, does a Grammy, is that something you're looking forward to even more now that you've actually tasted it? More Grammys? That'd be cool. We got nominated on this last record. Yeah, yeah. And uh, we, whatever. I'm glad Chris Cornell won. I was hoping he would, honestly. And uh, we were sitting next to the Alice in Chains boys. and <laughs> They lost their category. And Jerry was so funny. He was like, 11 time loser. All right, I'm out of here. You guys later. <laughs> <laughs> and, it, you know, it was, it was kind of fun losing with them. Sure. And, Good company. Yeah. And, but you know, we've won one, we've been privileged. We've been lucky. So yeah, of course you want to win more. That'd be great. And it's fun to go. It's the Grammy. It's a trip, man. Music is celebrated. And, and really that whole pre-tell the non-television portion of the Grammys that gets streamed online. Uh -huh. If you haven't watched that, you gotta, cause it is the best. Like all these categories of musicians that you've probably never really heard of. Yeah. Yeah. And, and this, this award is like life changing for these people. And you see, and they, they give, they go up there and give their speeches and it's so emotional. Like I cry every time. It's like, right. yeah, yeah, it's so awesome. And, uh, that, that's, that's to me where the real music celebration is going on. Like watching 
like these jazz people and these Latin music people and the children's album and, you know, best no, regional great. roots. It, like that, there's so many great moments during that thing. And, you know, the televised thing is just a big, weird pop concert. But yeah, you know, I, it, it was nice on this. This last nomination meant a lot because making the last record vicious, we were like really lost in the beginning. Um, we had written like 12 or 15 songs and they were all good. They, were, they, would, they probably would have done fine, maybe even better than, yeah, who knows? I don't know. It felt like it wasn't inspiring. It wasn't inspiring to me or any of us. And we were kind of bummed out about it. <laughs> Cause we like knew that some of our label guys like loved some of them. And we're like, fuck. And we met with Nick Raskolinix and we ended up producing the record. Uh-huh. And he said exactly what we were thinking. He's like, I love you guys. I'm a big fan of your band, but I don't want to make this record. And we're like, thank you so much. Cause we don't want to make this record either. And that leaves us with what the fuck do we do? And we didn't know what to do. We didn't know what, we wanted to do we we knew what we didn't want to do which was sound like those songs and nick is the best man he was like all right no problem this is what i do i got you and he's like yeah he like we set up our gear in this little cabin that he was recording in at the time and and he's like who's got a riff and that's kind of how it, that record started and okay like, well i got a shitload of riffs but i don't know what to do with it and he's like we'll play it and so we just started playing one of the first ones we did was ended up being uncomfortable so it was like it was cool to be recognized for that because that one meant a lot to us because it was just us like rediscovering ourselves, you know? Yeah. All right. Let's take a quick break and come back, talk about guitar practice and writing with Lizzie and more. John Petrucci's Majesty Guitar is now available in four brand new striking finishes, Pink Sand, Red Phoenix, Smoke Pearl, and Ember Glow. Equipped with John Petrucci's signature DiMarzio Rainmaker and Dreamcatcher pickups and an onboard piezo bridge system, the Majesty offers up a highly versatile palette of tones. Head to music-man.com to learn more. That's music-man.com. All right. You're in the hard rock slash metal scene. So you play shows with a wide swath of bands with varying heaviness, some being really heavy. Where, where do your taste buds lie on the on the heaviness spectrum as far as listening to music? I like some metal. I'm not a huge metal head. Yeah. No, no one in the band is really that big of a metal head. We we were when we were younger. Like I know Seven Dust and Metallica were like Lizzie's like intro to hard rock. That's what got her into it. You know, the uh-huh. home record, and uh, I forget which Metallica record was her first. But for me, it was like more the grunge stuff. But I there's some metal that I just like. I love so like Gojira. And I love Code Orange. Yeah, I have a podcast with them next week. Oh, with the Code Orange kids. Yeah, they're so good, man. That new record I think is so amazing and pushing every boundary, breaking every rule. Definitely, just like it should. <laughs> and it's so cool. There's a few other like Lamb of God. I, I I love that band too, and obviously Metallica and the classics. But but I'm you know I really like. I like rock and roll. Like I love the new Pearl Jam record. I think it's it's a it's a grower, not a shower to me. And <laughs> I think yeah. that's really awesome. I, like every time I listen to it, it, it sets itself deeper into my. You know, like I was listening last night to it for like the fifth time, and I, I really, man, they are like getting it. You know, there's nobody in that band slacking. They are Eddie is going nuts, and they're all in their forties, fifty. I don't even know how old they are, and they sound awesome. 
I love rock and roll like that. Queens of the Stone Age. I like a lot of blues. I really do. Like, uh, like I was saying, I jam out with Allman Brothers records all the time. And I got a bunch of Freddie King records. And what else have I been listening to? Jared James Nichols. He's a new kid who's just mind-melting at guitar. That stuff. And I've been into a lot of jazz lately. There's a, there's a great radio station that I listen to a lot called FIP. Do you know about FIP? No. FIP. FIP. Um, okay. It's this French public radio. I think they're doing limited broadcasting now because the country shut down, but you, it's an app you can get on your phone. It's a pink app. It's like pink colored. And their main station, I heard it, we, we were doing press in France at the beginning of the last record and we went into our hotel room and there's just a radio station on, on a little clock radio. And uh, we had had a few drinks and I was like, Oh my God, what is going on? This is cool. Like it was just really cool music. And, it would, it would do like this jazz flute thing and then into the Beastie Boys song that sampled it and then into like a blues song and then into like some classical and then a hip hop song. And then there's a rock song. Like, Oh, that's cool. Okay. Genre free radio with no commercials, just every yeah. once in a while. Like, this is beats, this is blues. you know, someone will say something in French, but no idea what. And it's just amazing. Like I always have it on just, you can just put it on in the background and all of a sudden you'll be like, what am I even listening to right now? Oh my God like a bunch of world music. But within that app, they have a jazz station that is killer, <laughs> like super killer. You know, it's like, I, I like the kind of, our tour manager, sound guy, Mike Mahar, always puts on jazz records at night on the bus, late night. He, he used to run, run a station in his college days and do a jazz station. So he's got all, he knows all these old cats. And it's all his 50s, 60s, 40s, 50s, 60s. It's all like live improv kind of, just dudes getting it, you know, like getting at it on whatever horn or instrument they're on. And that's, that shit inspires me so much. And like, just listening to that and how they work around changes and where they go and the phrasing, like is what I'm into with guitar playing right now. I'm not trying to be a jazz player. I, 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 I don't have music theory in my brain or in my bones. I, I go by feel, but I like the rhythms and the, the phrasing and uh, like to imagine what, you know, their melodies and what they're saying and how they're saying it. And that's the kind of bigger picture shit that I'm into. So, so I listen to a lot of fit and fit jazz. Okay. I'll check it out. Hey, what does your guitar practice look like at this point? Is it, is it a separate thing from band practice or does your guitar practice just kind of come mostly through writing and playing hailstorm songs? Lately, man, I got a little rusty. <laughs> I'm putting a solo on my friend's song right now. Okay. He sent it to me yesterday. And just in the last two, three weeks, I haven't been playing as much. I don't know that. I don't know why. And like, I was like, oh man, I bet I'm going to be right. Because, you know, if you don't use it, you start to lose it. And you can get it back, but it mm-hmm. there's a breaking in period every time. T- if you take a, a few days off, you know, like your fingers start to lose the 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 fluid stuff that that feeling so i haven't been, my practice hasn't been too it's just been the writing like getting the songs down yeah. i haven't been like working and getting keeping my licks up and i was like I, I arranged a solo last night and i got through it the best i could but i told him i was like hey man <laughs> like i'm a little rusty right now I, I played through it like 30 times last night and like i'm feeling it today you know and i was like i don't have it right yet i'm not going to get it right for another few days i got to keep i get my fingers back in shape so I'm glad he told me to do that, but, but really my practice right now, it's, I, I'm, I'm not in a focus. I get in and out of focused practicing, you know, like 
going on true fire, doing some of that stuff where you sit down and you spend a few hours, like getting your nuance right and your feel right. And, uh, I'm not in one of those zones right now. I, like, yeah. I think I'm going to start jamming to some brothers records again to get my licks back up. And if I feel like getting into a focus thing, I will, but what, what does it look like when you and Lizzie are writing? Is it, are you usually in the same room or is it sort of something where you'll come up with a riff and then hand it over to her? It's all things like we'll write together. She, she's always writing. She's just one of those people that just writes, you know? Yeah. Will um, she write she, melodies while she's making up chords at the same time to kind of, Oh yeah. She'll chords? do it on guitar. She's got like a little guitar rig, vocal rig. And she's also got a P she, she wrote a ton of songs. She's a piano player first. So she writes a uh-huh. bunch on the piano and uh, now she's writing a bunch on guitar just to switch it up. And like, I have like a bank of like hundreds of, if it's maybe it's just a riff. Sometimes it's like full instrumental songs. And I, you know, I, mm-hmm. I like thinking of titles like lyrically. I'm not a big lyricist. It's her singing it, you know? Yeah. Yeah. Like I love idea. I love, I love the idea of like thinking of, what what is something Lizzie would say or what's a concept Lizzie would talk about, you know, and then discussing that with her, like, Oh, here's a, here's a line or an idea, like, like a, even just the title, you know, like we, we've been into one word titles lately. She's been killing it. Like, is this paired like a, with a musical idea or not necessarily? Sometimes, sometimes not. Like I really like the bigger picture things, you know, and mm-hmm. uh, you got, we got to look at it that way. And it's something that we've been trying to get better at. Because, man, we've written some really dumb songs, you know, (laughs) that have been on some records. And where it's just like, you know, you're just saying something stupid and it doesn't mean anything and there's nothing to it, you know. So, and it comes down to like bands are so interesting and singers in particular and like their characters, you know, and like the good ones are almost cartoon character like in their like you slash, you could see an outline, a, a silhouette and know it's slash, you know. Yeah. Like like that idea of this big character, like Lizzie's a big character. She's this ferocious hard rock front woman, you know, that screams her ass off and plays an explorer. It's awesome. So what would she say? You know, what is she, what are the things, you know, those sort of ideas are some of the big concept things. So she'll sit down with some of my riffs and instrumentals. I'll program drums and put bass and maybe do some organ or synthesizer shit. You know, I like to Uh create this big bed and she'll sit like, she'll sit down and sing on that or we'll come up with a melody together or I'll take some of her songs and try to write riffs on that or, you know, like get it a little more riffy underneath or something that'd be closer to what we do. Do you ever write like awesome music and then you pass it over and she's like, nah, it doesn't, doesn't work with vocals. Oh yeah. Well, you know, if it doesn't work and it's like, I got, I have a few right now that are, I know are so killer. (laughs) Yeah. But like, she sat with it in the booth and put a few melodies down. They weren't right. And which is fine. That ha- happens a bunch. And to me that, you know, is why I'm glad we have time because then you put it away and you don't think about it for a month, you know, and you kind of mute what you did before. And then you go back to it and you think about it again. Like just, you just yeah, approach fresh eyes. Yeah. Yeah. Fresh ears. And uh, that happens sometimes. Other times she'll take, an instrumental and just destroy it and like take it up to the new level. You, you're fighting. We have standards that we set for ourselves and like writing for this new record, we have a bunch of really good songs and I don't think we have anything great yet. And we just started. So it's uh-huh. like, whatever, I don't need to put that much pressure on myself, but You've got time now. 
Yeah, I'm a little annoyed though, because I'm like, man, I thought for sure we'd dive into this. We've had so many ideas stored up over the last two years of touring, yeah. and they are good ideas, but we just haven't hit it yet. On, huh. on the, hit it, the nail on the head, so we will. I'm not worried. Oh, yeah. You just keep you keep digging that hole until you hit something. You know? Yeah. It always works out this way. There's always something when you think, yeah, we know what to do this time. Then you're like, oh my god, I have no idea what I'm doing. Can I even do this anymore? We should quit. <laughs> no, but get around the corner and it, it works out. Yeah. You yeah. just got to keep fighting. Right. All right. Quick check in with strings. Are you still playing skinny top heavy bottoms? Yep. Yeah. Okay. Sure. Am. The, the paradigms paradigm or, or is the regular? Yeah. The, I love the paradigms. Yeah. So well made. Like the first, I remember the first time I opened the pack, you look at the bottom. I think we talked about this in the string theory thing, but like yeah, yeah. how it's wound up at the bottom at the ball, like, you can tell it's good. Like, I don't know. I was sitting there with my guitar tech when we first got them and we're like, Oh yeah, these will do. This is great. Solid. Yeah. And that was something I had to learn the hard way that not all strings are made equal. No. <laughs> I remember when we first started out touring in 06, like I was saying earlier, people would be giving us strings and there are some, there are some really strange, random, small string companies out there. And which I think is awesome. Go get them entrepreneurs. And some of them I'm sure are great, but I remember getting a pack from these guys and I hadn't heard of them before or since, but I was like, well, you know, I was still buying strings at that point. So I was like, yeah, I'll use them. And I remember like I was playing guitar and like I brushed it with my arm and it like ripped all the hair out of my arm. It was like first <laughs> time that it ever happened. I was like, ha, what is that? I was like, what? Is, then the, then like one of the strings broke in the first song. And I was like, oh my, oh my God, string, there are bad strings on it. I thought it was just a simple piece of metal. <laughs> yeah, yeah, but, yeah. Uh, so yeah, we were impressed. Regardless, we were impressed yeah. with the paradigms when you sent them. So, yeah, yeah. 52 bottom, yeah, 10 on top. All right. Well, Joe Hottinger, thanks for being on the podcast. Well, thanks for having me, man. I, it, it was fun talking with you. Thanks again for tuning in to Striking a Chord, and Ernie Ball podcast. Thanks to Joe Hottinger. I hope the writing process has been coming along nicely. If you'd like to contact us, you can email strikingaccord at ernieball.com. The next tour we went on after that, we learned what tours were really like, where you get to beg for a few bottles of water. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. But uh, so we just had like so much tequila so much beer. We were going nuts and we had no, we didn't, we just thought it was a party. These other guys are out there working, trying to get their singles going. And, and when we were hustling, like we'd get to the venue and find the radio station that was presenting. And we'd just walk up to them and be like, Hey, we're opening the show. You want to do an interview? <laughs> <laughs> and they'd be like, sure. Or, you know, the most of them would be like, Oh yeah, sure. Hop on yeah. the air. How about 10 minutes? We're like, great. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And, uh, you know, like every sound check was like a show for us. We'd give it our all because we, we didn't ever, never knew who was watching. It was funny. But after every show, we'd go out into the merch, band, merch booth and meet people. And we ended up, like, we did two tours. And I think we sold like 20 or 25,000 of those CDs <laughs> just yeah. hustling at the live shows, you know. Yeah. I remember we, we set a record for single night CD sales in this show in Iowa. We sold like 500 and I think uh, it was us like hustling on those CDs on the, those first tours. Like they're like, well, they sold like twenty five thousand records out of the back of their uh, yeah, right, right, back of their van, their RV. Maybe we should see what the first record does. And thank God, 